From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Katherine Gibson, VOA Congressional Correspondent and Kimberly Adams, Correspondent for Marketplace. Welcome, Katherine and Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you. Well, here are the issues. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken defended the Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan during tough questioning before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. His testimony comes amid bipartisan opposition to the chaotic withdrawal of U.S. forces and American citizens from Afghanistan and leaving behind some 100 Americans. Democrats continue to work to pass a $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, the different wings of the Democrats. Democratic Party in both the House and Senate must first reconcile their differences to get the bill passed. Voters in the U.S. state of California rejected an effort to remove Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom from office. Nearly 70 percent of voters overwhelmingly voted no and ending Newsom's tenure early, with just more than 30 percent voting yes. President Biden announced the United States and Britain will share highly sensitive nuclear submarine technology with Australia, a major departure from past policy, and a direct challenge to China in its Pacific neighborhood. A Justice for J6 rally planned for this weekend in Washington, D.C., with an intent to show support for those arrested in the wake of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Capitol Police anticipated the event and had a fence constructed to surround the U.S. Capitol building, and an emergency declaration was issued to allow the Capitol Police to deputize outside law enforcement during the rally. Those are the issues, and let's get started. Catherine, what can we say are some takeaways from the tough questioning U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken received from lawmakers on Capitol Hill regarding the U.S.-led evacuation of foreign troops from Afghanistan? Well, what I think we can take away from the hearings this week is that there was certainly criticism on both sides of the aisle of the way the Biden administration managed that evacuation. You know, granted, Democrats are very supportive of his overall decision to withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan, ending the United States' longest nearly 20-year war in that country. What they were saying is that Biden was faced with an impossible choice and that he made a tough decision that, quite frankly, previous U.S. presidents have not made. What they did say is that there could have been much better planning and preparation in terms of getting those American citizens out and in particular joining with Republican lawmakers and saying that we must have had a much better plan to get those Afghan SIVs, the special immigrant visa applicants out, because of course those people were our allies during that nearly two decade war. They were promised visas to get out of Afghanistan in return for their help, translating, interpreting, working with U.S. forces. And from the numbers that we're getting from the White House, only about 700 of those people got out in that evacuation. Kimberly, your take on this. Some of it was quite predictable. You had Republican members of Congress really berating him and the Biden administration on how that withdrawal went and Democratic leaders trying to put all of the blame on the Trump administration and Blinken kind of trying to remain stoic through the whole thing. 
the downside is exactly as Catherine said, that now we have a situation where so many of the Afghan SIVs do remain in Afghanistan with extreme difficulty getting out under the Taliban, and it's just a mess. And so I think what is going to be more interesting now is what happens moving forward. How does Congress react to the Biden administration's calls for increased funding for these programs to continue to resettle Afghan SIVs. There are efforts to potentially work with private groups and religious groups to help resettle more refugees. And right now, many of these people are in secondary staging areas. And so it's one of those situations that has become increasingly politically fraught, but the Biden administration is standing firm in its decision, saying it was necessary to do and that they were not going to leave it for or a subsequent administration to take on. You know, and in terms of congressional oversight, we also heard some calls from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to have DOD officials come up to Capitol Hill and testify. You know, Secretary of Defense Austin was invited to participate in a hearing and did not heed those calls as of yet. I think you're going to see lawmakers pushing for him to come up onto Capitol Hill and have a hearing of his own because, quite frankly, a lot of the questions that Secretary of State Blinken was getting during those hearings were based on military strategy, and those were things that he couldn't quite address. I think we're going to absolutely have to see those DOD officials come up and answer some tough questions. Yes, that's a very good point. And the United States says it will not lift existing sanctions on the Taliban, but it will ensure life-saving humanitarian aid to vulnerable Afghans. So how will the U.S. ensure that the aid will go to those in need? That was a big topic of discussion during those hearings. A lot of Republican lawmakers were grilling Secretary of State Blinken, asking him how he can be sure that this is not going to go directly to the Taliban. You know, in the past, this is something where they have been able to not make sure that it's in particular directed towards Afghan girls and women. And what Blinken was saying was that there are ways that the U.S. can certify different aid organizations. There's a lot of logistical issues that they can work out to make sure that that is rerouted through other organizations. And at least some of that aid goes to the Afghan people, which is very important because we know that the country is facing a significant drought and food insecurity. And that's something that the Afghan people are desperately going to be needing in the coming months. I can give an example of this. I spoke to staff at the International Committee of the Red Cross and Red Crescent who talk about the fact that they were working in Afghanistan when the Taliban was in power, when the Taliban lost power in the United States and NATO were involved, and they're still there. And they have these established conduits of moving aid through regardless of the political or military situation. So there is an infrastructure in place. I spoke to somebody from the World Health Organization that says they're getting ready to get their teams back up and running in Afghanistan. So there are established pathways for aid to move into the country that can go around the Taliban if, of course, the Taliban allows that to happen. Some experts are saying that China and Pakistan are stepping in to provide both immediate support and the prospect of long-term investment to the Taliban interim government in Kabul. So what could this mean for the region and also for U.S. security interests? 
the Chinese government has been very open about the fact that they are ready to work with the Taliban meeting in person at a very high level with Taliban officials. And one of the things that this is doing is it's making it a little bit harder for the United States and its allies to put pressure on the Taliban and engage in sanctions and other types of penalties for anything that happens there, because China does have interest. Afghanistan has rare earth metals and other types of mining industries that China would very much like to develop. China has its Belt and Road Initiative that's moving throughout Asia that they very much want Afghanistan to be a part of. They already have quite a bit of infrastructure in Pakistan. And so I do think that China's influence and growing influence in the region is going to make it harder for the United States and its allies to exert pressure on the Taliban. But of course, Secretary of State Blinken was also making the argument to lawmakers that there's nothing that China wanted to see more than to have the U.S. bogged down in a war for another five to ten years in Afghanistan. He was making that argument somewhat unsuccessfully to lawmakers that this was actually a good way of countering Chinese influence in the region. Very good points both of you raised on this issue. On now to another top issue on Capitol Hill. On the $3.5 trillion social spending package, President Biden met with Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, two moderate Democrats, to hear their concerns about the package. So, Catherine, what can we anticipate from this meeting? Well, we're not getting a great readout on what happened there, but what we do know, stepping back to the bigger picture, is that this is a $3.5 trillion package, and it's one of the biggest social welfare pieces of legislation that we're hopefully going to see passed on Capitol Hill in the past few decades. But there's a lot of significant stumbling blocks to getting that done. And mainly, that's, as you mentioned, those different wings of the Democratic Party, the progressives, the moderates, who are tussling over the final price tag for this bill. And then also looking at this as an opportunity to really get some of their major initiatives in there on climate change, health care, child care. This is really an opportunity for everyone to get their project in there and really get something significant done. The problem is, is that Congress, as always, is running up against that short timeline. The House is not back in session fully until next week, and they're going to have to be tussling and fighting this out, negotiating it, while they're also facing a Pelosi-imposed deadline to vote on the Biden infrastructure plan. That is supposed to happen on September 27th. House progressives are saying they will not vote on that infrastructure bill until they get their initiatives that they want into this larger economic agenda. And of course, we also have government funding that has to be renewed, a looming debt ceiling. All of these things are piling up. Well, Congress really only has a few more weeks left in session during the rest of the year. Also, Kimberly, progressive Democratic leaders hope to convince moderate Democrats in the House and Senate to accept these trillions of dollars in new spending. And they say as long as it doesn't involve adding to the mounting federal debt and deficit, how can they do this? What is their game plan? Well, they're looking at quite a few different solutions on the taxing side. Where can taxes be increased on either wealthy Americans or corporate interest or even on things like nicotine to try to raise some additional revenue to offset the price tag? Now, of course, some in the progressive wing kind of balk at the idea of needing to pay for the legislation at all, given that other legislation, if we look at the sort of tax cuts passed during the Trump administration, didn't necessarily 
necessarily pay for themselves or, or were balanced out. This is kind of an ongoing debate with many in the progressive side digging in saying that this is legislation that needs to move through regardless of the debt implications. But moderates like Catherine was just describing, looking for really just having sticker shock and not liking that price tag at all. And I think it's quite telling that um, Biden did sit down with Cinema and Mansion to talk to them at the White House. It really reveals the amount of power that these two moderate senators have in these negotiations. But I also think you're seeing more folks in the sort of progressive wing of the Democrats also dig in. Bernie Sanders being quite blunt that he and his allies don't want to move on the infrastructure package without this $3.5 trillion more human infrastructure package, as they're calling it. Also, leaders such as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi call the bill an effort at transformational change. So really, what are Americans thinking about this bill? People are still focused on the impact of the pandemic, on getting back to work, on getting the economy going again. And people that I'm hearing from are saying that, you know, this is something that is needed, particularly the pandemic really hit working women hard. And so in terms of funding for child care, for health care, this is something important that they're going to want to be seeing. There's a lot of growing awareness about the issues of climate change and the need to have clean, renewable energy, to have energy funding for how we're going to be moving forward. I don't think that there's a lot of sense yet that this is something that's in the minds of Americans, and that's mostly because Congress has not fully come back into session yet to debate this out, but I think you're going to be seeing growing awareness throughout the fall. And if you take something like the child tax credit that was expanded during the pandemic and is now going out as monthly payments to many families rather than being refundable tax credit that they get at tax time, I think that you're going to increasingly see the Biden administration and those pushing for that $3.5 trillion package to hold examples of items like that. They want to make that expansion permanent as a way to sort of drive more public support of this legislation, which is still being in the process of being written. <laughs> yes, that is so true. On now to California, where Governor Gavin Newsom survived a Republican attempt to remove him from office, ensuring that the Democrat can serve out the rest of his term as the top official in the nation's most populous state. So looking at this, what message was sent to the nearly 1.5 million Californians who signed the recall petition? Well, I think that the bigger message is Democrats are looking very carefully at what happened in California as sort of their playbook for how to respond to these sorts of efforts that are cropping up all over the place. You have sort of a minority backlash against Democratic leaderships in many places to vaccine mandates and mask mandates. And in this case, they organized, they pulled in some really powerful Democratic allies, including the vice president, going out to California to basically squash it. I think that the opponents of Newsom and those who supported the recall were disappointed. Of course, there were concerns in the final days of the recall that we'd face another sort of 2020 Trump-style accusation that the election had been rigged or that there were problems with fraud. There was no evidence of that at all, but the narrative was attempted to be perpetuated in that way, and Democrats were definitely on the lookout for it. But I think you're going to see a lot of political operatives unpacking what happened in California as a model of what we might see in midterm elections coming up in 2022. But 
it's also pushing, I think, a lot of Californians to look at the recall system in general. It was a very expensive race, a very expensive process to basically maintain the status quo. And I think a lot of folks are wondering if that was a good use of taxpayer dollars in California. To kind of piggyback off what you said is there's always a lot of reading the tea leaves and off election years. Whenever there's a special election, everybody wants to look at those special elections and see what they mean for upcoming midterms. I always think that you need to approach that with caution because there are so many different local elements that come into play that necessarily won't come into play in national midterm elections. But we did see Governor Newsom, you know, call out to Democratic voters in the last days before that and say, you know, look, I need you to mobilize and I need you to get out and vote. And that is indeed what happened, which is a promising sign for Democrats and the idea that Democrats really can mobilize their voters in the upcoming midterms. Well, it's time now for a short break. And when we come back, President Biden announces a new alliance with Great Britain and Australia. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, Katherine Gibson, VOA Congressional Correspondent, and Kimberly Adams, Correspondent for Marketplace. Kimberly, President Biden announced a new three-way defense alliance with Great Britain and Australia, where the countries will share highly sensitive nuclear submarine technology. How significant is this new alliance? It's a pretty big deal, and it's aimed very squarely at countering China's influence in the region. You have basically these three maritime English-speaking powers announcing that they're going to be coordinating even more deeply than they were in other existing partnerships that were probably a bit more expansive involving other countries on issues related to the world's oceans, and especially if you look at the South China Sea, where China has been even more aggressive. And there have been efforts for them to sort of stake out claim in areas that are disputed. And so this nuclear submarine technology that the United States is sharing with Australia is going to allow for Australia to have submarines that can stay underwater longer, that are harder to detect, that can shoot missiles further. And China is already complaining that it reflects a bit of a Cold War posturing on behalf of the United States. They're also talking about sharing technology around cybersecurity and artificial intelligence, undersea cables, the types of infrastructure structure that's becoming increasingly important, not just for global defense, but also for global commerce. The United States and the UK, clearly in this arrangement with Australia, are noticing that and hoping to deepen engagement on those issues so that they are not so reliant on China's role in moderating all of those elements of the global economy. President Biden has made it clear that he views China as the country's most significant global competitor. How do you think this will affect the relations between the U.S. and China? The Chinese officials who have spoken about it thus far are obviously disappointed and have talked about that 
the United States should not be building exclusionary blocks targeting or harming the interest of third parties. And I think we're going to hear more language like this and potentially more alliances that China is going to look to reinforce to counter this. One would hope that this doesn't spark an arms race, but this is very clearly a defense pact targeted at China. And it will be very fascinating to see uh, what the next step from that will be. Absolutely. It will be very interesting with this alliance. Well, in Washington, D.C., a Justice for Six rally was planned with demonstrators saying they wanted to support those arrested in the wake of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. In a video, Matt Brainerd, an ex-campaign employee for former President Donald Trump and an organizer of the event, called those facing charges for their alleged actions during the deadly riot political prisoners, saying they had been treated unfairly. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on his statement and on really the significance of this rally. Well, what's been significant to me is watching the communications from congressional leaders in the days leading up to this rally. There's been a lot more preparation. We've been hearing a lot more from the U.S. Capitol Police about the preparations that are going up around the U.S. Capitol. We're hearing from Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, who actually sent out a dear colleague letter to members of Congress to talk about some of the ways they were preparing for this rally. It's important to note that this rally is taking place on a Saturday when Congress is out of session, which means that members of Congress and their staff will not physically be at the U.S. Capitol. So this is very different from January 6th, when, of course, Congress was in session and doing the very important work of certifying the 2020 election. So just from the start, there's a very different dynamic here in terms of what will be going on on Capitol Hill while this rally is going on and the preparations for it. The U.S. Capitol Police are saying that they have this under control and that this will not be another situation like January 6th. And you're also seeing Republicans, leaders and officials and, and politicians really staying away from it. They don't really seem to want much to do with it in a way that many of the Trump supporters and higher profile politicians and political speakers were willing to engage in the January 6th, what started out as a demonstration and obviously turned into the violent insurrection. And even you see a sense that Matt Brainerd, who you mentioned, who's organizing this, is tweeting that he doesn't want anyone wearing clothing supportive of Trump or Biden at the event, that it's just about these people arrested in the Capitol riots. So it will be very fascinating to see how many people actually show up for this event. As Catherine said, it just has a completely different tone and definitely response than January 6th. And I just wanted to add what the U.S. Justice Department has said on this. They say that more than 700 people have been arrested in wake of the January 6th attack. To further add, the United States Attorney General's office has posted on their website that under their leadership, and I quote, the investigation and prosecution of those responsible for the attack continues to move forward at an unprecedented speed and scale. The Department of Justice's resolve to hold accountable those who committed crimes on January 6th has not and will not wane, unquote. So I don't think anything is going to stop the investigation and prosecution of those 
was involved in this mob attack on the U.S. Capitol. Your last thoughts. Well, I think it's just important to note that there are several reporters who are following the prosecutions very closely and noting that there's video and photographic, photographic evidence of many of these people who are being prosecuted, where you can actually see what they're being accused of happening. A lot of this is very well documented. It is moving through the U.S. court system as any prosecution would be. This is being followed by the law. This is a process that is happening legally for each of these people. Many of them are plea bargaining out and saying that they did indeed do these things on January 6th. This is a process that is being followed and these people are getting their day in court. And I think the fact that there is so much video and photographic evidence of what happened on January 6th is also a deterrent for this rally coming up on Saturday. People are very aware of how quickly you can be identified and named on social media and even those who maybe aren't being prosecuted for what they did on January 6th, even their presence at those rallies has cost them professional and personal consequences and so I think that will also serve as a bit of a dampening effort to what happened on Saturday. Absolutely, and we will have to end on that note. My thanks goes to Kimberly Adams, correspondent for Marketplace, and Katherine Gibson, VOA congressional correspondent. I'm Kim Lewis, and thank you for joining us for Issues in the News.